Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 6 and verse 41. And we'll get the response of the crowd that was there in the synagogue in Capernaum at our Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful explanation of salvation that we enjoy so much they did not. John chapter 6, verse 41. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. And then he'll explain in the following verses as to what the real issue was, and that is that they were not God's children and had not been born again, and that's why they didn't like his preaching. Verse 41, the Jews then murmured at him because of his statement that he had made before the explanation of salvation. Belly worshipers crave free food, but they hate the effort or the thought of spiritual things. It's very similar today. They love pleasures more than God. In 2 Timothy 3 is the warning. Very similar today. They'll no longer endure sound doctrine. The warning in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Murmuring is a huge difference from receiving the word with all readiness of mind. Acts chapter 17 and verse 11 tells us that those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. And we ought to have a ready mind. I mentioned a verse from 1 Thessalonians in the first service, despise not prophesyings. We should want to hear preaching. We should want to hear God's word preached. And these people should especially have wanted to have heard God's word preached by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To murmur is to complain or repine in low muttered tones, to give vent to an inarticulate discontent, to grumble. It's to complain against constituted authority. It's to murmur and to resent and to say so, and to mumble among yourselves that you don't like the Lord Jesus Christ in this particular case. Fools will murmur rather than give thanks. These people were blessed. They had the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal teacher. He had demonstrated his power to them. He had fed them personally. Now he was laying out salvation clearer than it had ever been laid out before. There's no passage in the Old Testament equivalent to John 6, 37 through 40. That's a beautiful passage right there, but they can't get over the fact that he claimed divine authority as having been one that came down from heaven. God has severely judged complainers and murmurers in the past, and he will do so in the future. When Israel complained about the lack of water, when Israel complained about their manna, when Israel complained about the land of Canaan, that it was going to be too hard to take it, they were destroyed of the destroyer. Those are God's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 10. They were destroyed of the destroyer. We shouldn't murmur about anything. There is nothing in your life to murmur about. Well, you're not married to the person I'm married to. You picked them. (laughs) There's nothing you should murmur about, especially the Lord Jesus Christ and doctrinal truth. If the Bible says that Jesus is the word of God made flesh, if the Bible says Jesus ascended after he descended, then he both descended and ascended. And we believe it, we love it, we don't complain or murmur about it. If the Bible declares that there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, we believe it. We don't have to explain it. We believe it without complaining or murmuring. These people complained. They complained that he was the bread that came down from heaven or he had said so. Why will men fuss about details, forgetting the obvious and divine miracles that he had performed? Why do they fuss about details, missing the incredible doctrine just stated about salvation? They should have shouted amen. Amen. They should have asked for more explanation. They should have run to him believing, 
since he had included in verse 40 that those that see the Son and believe on him may have everlasting life. They should have asked about the details of such a wonderful doctrine presented, but they marveled at, they murmured at him. They resented him. They complained about him that he was not special. He was just one of the ordinary Capernaum High School graduates, Nazareth High School graduates, whatever you wish, from their area of Galilee, 70, 80 miles north of Jerusalem. They knew his parents. They knew his genealogy. How in the world did he come down from heaven? Well, they should have asked how. They should have checked the records a little more closely about Joseph and Mary. Let's fear two things, neglecting Jesus Christ or ever questioning him. Jesus with his identity and finished work is a divider. If you read John 7, 43, there was a division among the people because of him. If you read 9, 6, teen, there was a division among the people because of him. 10, 19, there was a division among the people because of him. All in the gospel of John, Jesus Christ is the great divider. Everyone says they're a Christian. No one is a Christian. That's the general rule. There's hardly a real Christian. That's someone who will dedicatedly, sacrificially follow Jesus Christ without regard to family, friend, finances, home, job, or anything else. There's very few of them. But everybody will tell you they're a Christian. Lord, help us. Jesus is a great divider. And when Jesus Christ is preached properly, which includes John 6, that he drove away a great multitude of belly worshipers, and most who claim to be Christians are belly worshipers. Nobody likes that name. Their God is their belly. They mind earthly things. They're among us. You've met them, many of them. Most of those who take the name of Christ in their mouths are belly worshipers. Lord, save us from them, and Lord, save us from being one of them. Because it's going to take his power to keep us and restrain us from the foolishness of our own natures. In that 41st verse, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. The reason Jesus had taken up the metaphor of the word bread is because they brought it up. They came to him and wanted bread. Jesus said he knew what their motivation was in verse 26. He told them not to labor for the meat that, or food that perishes. And then they wanted to tell Jesus that Moses had given their fathers bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. So he picked up on that metaphor and used it against them. That he was the real bread from heaven. And it was the words from heaven that irritated them the most that Jesus of Nazareth was God sent down from heaven. His name, Emmanuel, God with us. The first point of the great mystery of our faith, God was manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 And so that is what they objected against. It also offended them because they took Jesus figurative symbol, literally. And how many errors are there today with men taking figurative, symbolic language in the Bible and making it literal? Later in this chapter, eat my flesh and drink my blood. The Catholics will turn that into transubstantiation of actually turning their little cracker into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ thinking they need that doctrine in order to fulfill John 6. But he's speaking figuratively. And so the error is made about the word bread as well. Many errors and heresies are by taking our Lord's figurative speech literally. He explained he came down from heaven, from God, in order to save. Right. He said he, te he teaches us that in verse 38. I came down from heaven. Not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. He's already said that he's the bread that came down from heaven in verses 32 through 35. Verse 33, the bread of God is he, a singular male, the one standing in front of them, which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. 
And then he says he came down not to do his will, but his father's will. And they didn't like that. They're looking to deny the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was nothing beautiful about him. He wasn't comely in appearance. The Bible tells us that. He came from low parentage. A low, a, the Galileans were not considered a noble part of the Jewish map or the map of Israel. And so they rejected him. And he arranged all that in advance. Right. Understand, he arranged all that in advance. He could have been born to higher parents, but he wasn't. He was born to Joseph and Mary, and it ruined these people because they couldn't see past that of their little town to realize that there could have been a miracle in their little town that resulted in the Son of God being among them. Even though John had declared him so, his miracles declared him so, the prophetic calendar of the Jews declared it so, everything was in favor of them believing, but unless God changes a person's heart, you can't convince them. There's no miracle to convince them. There's no external work, even by God, to convince them. It's got to be an internal work to change them, which we're going to shortly hear about. Instead of murmuring, they could have humbled themselves and politely asked him about how he came down from heaven. And what an explanation they could have heard. They would have heard Luke chapter 1 and how the angel explained to Mary that she was going to conceive a son without a man. The power of the highest would overshadow her. The Holy Ghost would come upon her. Therefore also that holy thing that shall be, was to be born of her would be called the Son of God. Verse 42. And they said, here's an elaboration on their complaint. Is not this Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Why are they even hearing Jesus? They're hearing Jesus because they saw his miracles of healing. Verse 2, because he fed them along with the 5,000 in the next 12 verses. Because he got across the Sea of Galilee without a ship. Because he calmed a storm. There were reasons they were there. And all of a sudden, they forget the reasons. The little bit of evidence that was plainly in front of them, they now overlook because they remember him growing up in Galilee with them. They remember that they know his parents. But the truth deserves to be pursued a little further. Right. Not one of us has the intellect for the truth. It's got to be a heart that's prepared for the truth by being taught internally. And that is to go to the Word of God in complete humility and submission and realize that absolute truth is recorded on its pages. You can't pray and find truth. You can't follow your conscience and find truth. Truth isn't in your conscience. Truth isn't in your prayers. Truth is in the Word of God. Everyone prays. Do you know who prays the most? Catholics. Catholics pray far more than you do, but that doesn't help them find the truth. The truth is in God's Word. If you want to pray, pray for God to bless you in God's Word. They didn't want to do that. They didn't want to submit to the Word that they were hearing and ask about it. They wanted to re retort with the fact that we know his parents. He ain't nothing special. And look, what, look who they were missing. Because they were measuring him by their standard of measurement. Instead of murmuring, they could have considered his miracles a little more carefully. They said, is not this Jesus? Remember, we're in Capernaum. Jesus grew up in that area of Galilee. He lived in Capernaum. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13. They knew Jesus and his life from the Galilean district of this part of Rome's area of Palestine. They knew that he was more than merely Jesus of Nazareth by the miracles. What happened? Because they heard divine truth. That's what happened. Right. Divine truth divides men. Right. Divine truth drives people away. What did they hear? I am the bread of God that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am God's Savior of men, I am the source of everlasting life. I am God come down from heaven. Well, those are divine statements of truth. They didn't ask about them. They just rebelled against them. 
We know him. That can't be true of him. Why don't you ask instead of thinking? Your thoughts are worthless. It's God's thoughts recorded in Scripture that are of value. And that's all that's of value. But they lost. And all men would lose if it wasn't for God changing some of us. Don't we know that his father is Joseph? They knew his legal father because he had moved him to Nazareth after a couple of years in Egypt. Whose father and mother we know. We know his ancestors. We know his family tree. How can he come down from heaven in that 42nd verse? Why do they focus on a few words and ignore everything else they had seen and heard? So many do the same thing. Isaiah warned about them in Isaiah chapter 29, making a man an offender for a word because their minds are so small they can't think of two words at the same time. They can only think of one. And so they'll pick and ruin a sermon because of one word that came out of the preacher's mouth or one short statement that came from Jesus, I came down from heaven. That just blew their minds. It blew out all the miracles. It blew out the other things he had taught. It blew out how he took a few loaves and fishes, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and blessed it, and boom, it fed 5,000. How can they forget the declaration of truth they made hours earlier? You know what they said in verse 14? Then those men, that is 5,000 men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth. That prophet that should come into the world. What happened? More divine truth. I don't need you, and I don't want you, and you are belly worshipers, and God did not elect you, and God has not drawn you. Those are the next things that Jesus taught, and they all went away. They wouldn't submit, though they said, of a truth, this has got to be the prophet that Moses told us would come. Incredible. Brother, nothing's changed. The more we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, the more we go through a chapter like John 6 and preach against belly worshipers, it offends. Right. And we want it to offend. Yeah. We're not going to alter the message. We're not going to try to sugarcoat it. Why would we try to sugarcoat it? Jesus didn't sugarcoat it, and he was the master preacher. How can they forget their willingness to make him king? Because he said he was Savior, they reject him. But they wanted him to be king because all they were thinking about was their appetite for free bread. Did they pick on this statement of his because they hated hearing election? We shouldn't ignore that possibility. Because in other places it tells us that that is why they reacted so violently when they heard about election. Election is surely taught in verses 37 through 40. The more spiritual and divine teaching becomes, reprobate seekers disappear. Therefore, it's wisdom for us to preach Christ and Him crucified to expose them. Just keep pressing the claims of Jesus Christ on your life. Your life isn't yours. What? Know ye not? That ye are not your own, that you're bought with a price, and your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost? That is what ought to be preached. Jesus preached it. No man can be my disciple unless he hate every other relationship in his life. That's not our doctrine in this church. That's the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It's just not preached anywhere else. So we sound hard and harsh and tough and demanding and legalistic to those that don't understand the definition of words. So we're accused of things like that. But this is Jesus dealing with a crowd and whittling them from 15,000 to 12. And he had the 12 before he started. And one of them was a devil. Lord, help us. How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Because it was the truth. You just said he was the prophet. Do you know what prophets are for, folks? I'm talking to the 5,000. You called him the prophet sent from God. Do you know what prophets are for? To reveal the will of God. Do you know what the will of God is? I came down from heaven. You call me a prophet. I just told you where I came from. Why won't you believe me? Because no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. A huge, enormous difference. 
But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. But God hath shined in our hearts to show the knowledge of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let there be light in Genesis 1-3. Let there be light in each of our lives, hopefully in the past, already spoken by God to open up and we see the Lord Jesus Christ clearly. Amen. And we want to submit to him as King, Savior, Lord, and the one that came down from heaven. And we want to feast on his bread. And we want to eat his flesh and drink his blood in a spiritual way because he's opened our heart and mind to it. Right. He must make the difference. There's a game changer in town. And the town was Capernaum. And the game changer was the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the difference maker. Right. No man can come except my father. Oh, I love the doctrine of the Bible. It takes everything out of our hands, puts everything in his hands, takes all the praise out of, our, out of, our soul, out of ourselves and gives it all to him. Right. He deserves all the praise Amen. and thanksgiving. Amen. The doctrine that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and God himself is too much. How many others have attacked that doctrine over the years and the, two century, the, the centuries since Jesus came to earth? The doctrine that Jesus of Nazareth is from heaven, unlike us, is too much when they saw in him just an ordinary man of a poor background. We love the truth that God sent his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In Galatians 4, let us love, enjoy, and pursue everything we can read about him. That's what Matthew got in the pulpit for to remind you, to remind him of all the things that he has done to save us. Right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Amen. Who am I speaking of? The Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. the Word of God, who was made flesh and dwelt among us, Amen. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. The word of God became flesh, visited earth. And so John that wrote those three verses to open his gospel, used these four verses to open his epistle. That which was from the beginning. In the beginning was the word. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life, the life, the eternal life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life that was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. You should, those verses should put you out of your mind with joy. There's no joy in a family. There's no joy in a job. There's no joy in marriage compared to the joy that there is with Christ. I have a happier marriage than any of you. But that doesn't make me happy. It's the Lord that should make us happy. These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Notice there wasn't anything mentioned about finances, what country you live in, how big your house is, nothing. It's this one from John. In the beginning was the Word. All things were made by Him. We touched Him. We embraced Him. We laid on Him at supper. Those are wonderful statements. And John wrote to declare to us for us to have fellowship with him, apostolic fellowship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know why he saved you? For what I'm saying right now. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, speaking of himself, whom thou hast sent. That's why he saved us. He saved us for a purpose. And brethren, in this church, we want to realize our destiny. And our destiny is not to be champions on earth. This is not our best life now. Our best life is coming. And our destiny is to know God and his son, Jesus Christ, and to enjoy fullness of joy at his right hand forevermore and the pleasures of heaven. But we can experience them now by walking with him every day. And Nathan tried to share that with you from one angle in Psalm 35 earlier today. I'm overwhelmed by 1 John 1, the first four verses. Overwhelmed by it. The God that I read about in the Bible dwells in a light that no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be power everlasting forever and ever. He's the Lord God, Jehovah, I am that I am. He came and visited earth. And he was handled, held, embraced, seen, watched, listened to by apostles. And they want us to have apostolic fellowship with God and him. Therefore we can. And so 1 John tells us how. To live a righteous life and to hate sin. And to let not not sin reign in our members. And to, to hate this world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And to love our brethren because everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. It's just a wonderful epistle to press us toward fellowship with God. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, did come down from heaven in a glorious birth. He's going to shortly tell them, how would you like to see me go back to heaven where I came from? He says that in verse 62. He's furthering our doctrine of total depravity when he does it. He says in verse 62, What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Since you don't like hearing about me coming down, how about if I go back to where I was and you get to see it? Would it do any good? It would not do any good. This is just, if you want to remember verses and connect them or mark in your margin, when we get to Luke 16, 31, and Abraham tells the rich man that Lazarus coming back from the dead would not help his brothers, you might want to write in the margin there, John six sixty two, where Jesus pulls this one and says, What an if you were to see me ascend back to heaven. Since you don't believe I came down, how about if I let you watch me ascend out of your sight into the clouds and into heaven? It wouldn't do any good because then he quotes again in verse 65, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And this is the problem with this group of Jews. Jesus teaches something, they respond poorly. Jesus teaches something, they respond poorly. If you want a couple of great examples, that no matter the evangelistic method, you cannot convert an unregenerate soul. It's Luke 16, 31 and John 6, 62. Verse 43. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. Stop your complaining and whining about me. There's a reason you don't understand what I said, and there's a reason you reject what I said, because you haven't been drawn of my Father. And he's going to give us that in verse 44. Jesus knew, as with all things, what these unbelievers said among themselves. There's little reason to think they said these things to be heard of him audibly. They referred to him in the third person. They're talking among themselves. Murmuring is is low complaining. And so we make this assumption. Let nothing ever enter your heart or conversation to question the Son of God and His religion. You don't know better. Joel doesn't know better. No one knows better about religion than Jesus Christ. No one knows better of what a church should be like than Jesus Christ. No one knows better about the content of preaching than Jesus Christ. No one knows better about words that uplift the soul and expose unbelievers than Jesus Christ. We want to do everything His way. Always His way. Only His way. Strongly His way. Unapologetically His way. Stop murmuring. They murmured about His identity because they could only think naturally of where He went to high school. John the Baptist had declared such different things about Him and John the Baptist was well known among all the Jews. 
He told them to stop murmuring. Why? Because they could not and would not figure him out without divine help. His response here is similar to other unbelieving seekers that pursued him in John chapters 8 and 10, which we'll get to in time. The crux of their ignorance, the crux of their rebellion, was them, not him. And it wasn't his doctrine. It was them. Their hearts were not broken. Their hearts were not regenerated. Their hearts were not open. Their hearts were not submissive. Their hearts were not obedient. Here's the problem, and we're going to get it in chapter 7. How do we know if you're telling us the truth? A lie detector test? What goofy, retarded idea would somebody come up with? You know what Jesus said? If any, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether I speak of myself or I speak of God. Obedience. You humble yourself in obedience to Jesus Christ, and he reveals more truth to you. The path of the just, not the path of the watching, not the path of the I'm thinking about it, the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more under the perfect day. It's obedience. And until there's obedience, there's blindness. No obedience, blindness. Obedience, you're saved from blindness. If any man will do his will, John 7, 17, he shall know of the doctrine. So here we are, they're presented doctrine, they're blind, they're disobedient, they don't want to submit and humble themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he lays some further truth on them for our profit as well. Verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the third time in this chapter about God raise, Jesus raising up God's children from the dead in the last day, the great day of judgment. It was in verse 39, as the Father's will for him to lose nothing but raise them all up at the last day. It's in verse 40, that those that see the Son and believe on him can know they'll be raised up, it's here in 44, and it's in 54. This was obviously a very important theme to Jesus Christ in this particular place, that being resurrected from the dead into heaven is important information. And so it's stated repetitively four times for us. But he explains that this audience he has is not born-again children of God. Because he said in verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Right. But now he explains to them, stop your murmuring. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Right. He points out the fact that the, the problem is not his doctrine. The problem is not his method of presentation. Right. The problem is not in him not receiving someone. The problem is no man can come to me unless there's a great dramatic drastic change which he goes on to describe. No man can come to me. Coming to Christ is to believe on him in a sincere and true way that results in a changed life with good works. Lips don't count. Hearing doesn't count. Saying doesn't count. Let's be doers of the word and not hearers of it. Deceiving our own selves. Being a hearer without being a doer is a deceiver. Being a sayer without doing it is deceiving yourself. He that saith, I know him. Well, how do you know when a person says they know him, if they know him or not? You simply look at their life. What are they doing? Even a child is known by his doings. There's no other way around it. This is the entire message of the Bible. Actions count. Words are cheap. I know him, 1 John 2, 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. His commandments cover everything the Bible tells us that a person that's claiming to be, have God as their father should be doing. No man can come to me. This is real coming. This is real believing, the kind that we want to have. Let these six words lodge in your memory forever. When you're dealing with anyone about the doctrine of salvation or you're looking at lives, there has to be a divine 
gracious, powerful change in order for a person to properly, truly come to Christ and believe on him and obey him. These six words are wonderful. No man can come to me. That's Jesus giving his invitation. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. How effective was his invitational system? They all went away. I love his system. You have no more right to modify these words than Satan modified the words in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4 by saying, Thou shalt not surely die. Since Genesis 3, 6, man has been dead spiritually in need of such a total resurrection of his life. There is no cure or remedy to offer a dead man. You have to give the man life. Any study of salvation must deal with this fact of man's depravity, and it is stated right here in six words, no man can come to me. Well, if we do this, I wonder how many we can get to come to Christ. See, I've heard those words ad nauseum in the earlier part of my life. What methods can we use to get people to come to Christ? There is no method. The Lord's going to have to work. And all we should do is preach the word, just like Jesus did, just like Paul did, dry and boring, and trust that God will work in their lives in such a way that they'll rejoice in the dry and boring preaching, like they did in Christ and Paul's when they were born again. I thought I quoted to you from Acts 13 earlier today that when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Paul said, I dumbed down my message for demonstration of the spirit and of power. You don't need to enliven the message when you've got God's children hearing it. All they want is truth made manifest to their consciences, clearly, plainly presented. And so Paul said, we use great plainness of speech. But he wouldn't use eloquence. He wouldn't use enticing words of man's wisdom. We don't want a single person here that wants anything like that or feeds on anything like that. We want those here that feed on the gospel account of the Lord Jesus Christ and on his person and him as our redeemer and their desire to want to live for him sacrificially the rest of their lives. And so we're going to serve them just like Jesus did. No man can come to me. Those six words equal these words. All men run to sin in hatred and rebellion against me. I want you to see both sides of that coin. No man can come to me because all men would rather choose to run away from me in hatred and rebellion against God. For those of you that read Romans 1, 18 through 32 last night, you read those 15 verses of indictment of the human family. They're terrible verses. Those people are without excuse, but it's the whole of mankind. We are right in there among them if it were not for God plucking us. Oh, you're kidding. Dragging us. Oh, pulling us. Oh, ripping us out of the mess. Are you thinking? What's the four-letter word that we have coming up? Draw. And you thought it meant beg. You thought it meant entice. You thought it meant persuade. You thought it meant coddle. How do you think they drew water out of a well in John 4? How much was the, was the bucket cooperating? How'd they draw wine out in John 2? How did Peter draw his sword out in 18? How'd they draw their nets out of the Sea of Galilee in 21? If it were not for God ripping us out of the mess of Romans chapter 1, we wouldn't be saved and we'd be just as bad or worse than the average. That passage is so powerful. That passage should grip you. You should think beyond the, the social aspects of how it describes our nation and where that terrible sin, perverse perversity of sodomy came from, because it is explained perfectly clear there. But we should want to see that in the first few verses, the truth of God was revealed and offered to men, and they rejected it. Right. And we would all reject it. 
if we were not drawn by God to Christ. There's no ability of heart or will for the natural man to submit to the Son of God. Two and a half years ago, I preached to you two sermons called Total Depravity. In that 10-page outline, you have all the material you'll ever need about total depravity. But we can just consider a few thoughts about it from these words, no man can come to me. Jesus is saying, no man can come to me. There's There's a problem with ability. They can't come to me. They hate me. They run from me. They don't want me. Unless the Father draws them. There is no ability of heart or will for the natural man to submit to the Son of God. The heart, there's no ability there because the heart hates God. There's no desire in the mind for the things of God or for the things of Christ because the mind is bent toward sin. The mind is bent toward self. All that they can think of is themselves, their world, satisfying their belly instead of the divine power of the one that created the heavens and the earth and the one that they're going to stand before and give an account of their lives. The travesty is, it's, it's horrible what's happened to our race since the Garden of Eden. Men can still reason logically, but they will not do so towards spiritual truth. They will only reason against it. Then their logic falls apart. And so they are called in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 2, wicked and unreasonable men, for all men have not faith. Faith is the most reasonable component by which all reasoning should begin. If you don't start with faith in a supreme being, an intelligent design, then you start with nothing and you end up in a circle of nothing. And you can never build past nothing because you started with nothing. We start with the faith that there is a creator God and from there we can reason things. And we can identify the Bible as a supernatural book written by that supreme being and so forth. But it's not a matter of intellect or intelligence. Because men can still make two new models for BMW to sell in America with unregenerate minds. Even though they may use a couple of our regenerate minds to help them. Jesus denied a ruler of the Jews the ability to see Christ's kingdom. Jesus, on trial for his life in chapter 5, said, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. There's a problem of rebellion. The real issue is the heart. It's not the intellect. It's the heart that drives the intellect. It's the heart that interprets the intellect. The intellect looks at the universe and says, Obvious, intelligent design. Nope, I won't go there. No way do I want a creator God that's going to tell me how to live. And so they blow it out because they have a heart that says, I am my own God. The greatest love of all is my love of myself. In fact, I think that I'm going to marry myself. And so we've had some self-marriages pop up. And on and on it goes. If you need one in an update, ask me. Jesus denied another Jewish audience the ability to hear him in chapter 8. It's a terrible mess. So no man can come to me, Jesus said. Because the natural mind, the natural man is enmity against God. He is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Romans 8, 7 and 8. So then they that are in the flesh, what's the word? Cannot please God. Throughout the Bible, it all agrees with what Jesus Christ is teaching here. But notice, he is teaching it here to explain to an audience of unbelievers why they don't believe, because they weren't born again. They were still in their sins. The Father had not given them to Jesus. The Father had not drawn them to him. He was not going to lay down his life for them. And he wasn't going to raise them up in the last day. It is severe doctrine. I love it. You should love it. This is the Jesus of the Bible. They still got better than they deserved because they heard the truth, they got to see the truth in person, and they got filet of fish, all they could eat. No effort or method will help to bring an unregenerate man to Christ. Some people think that a change in environment, that if we were to go abroad into nations where the, where the children are poor and you were to adopt them and bring them into a nice home, that that would change them. I'll read you God's answer about that. 
let favor be showed to the wicked. Yet will he not learn righteousness? In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. He will not behold the majesty of the Lord if you were to adopt one of them, put them in your house, and tell them about the majesty of the Lord every day. It's Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 10. It's a terrible shame this verse and its doctrine and repetition are ignored. This statement, no man can come, is here in 44 and it's here in 65 and it's ignored. We believe it. And so it alters how we view salvation. It alters how we view men. It changes our worldview when we understand no man can come to me. It changes our methods so that we follow the word of God. It causes us to give great thanksgiving to God for having saved us because we know he had to change us before we ever would have come to Christ. This heresy of missing these six words, and these six words are the doctrine of total depravity. And it's where any study of salvation should start. If you ever discuss salvation with anyone, start with total depravity. Because they are going to immediately go to something that a person needs to do in order to get saved. But Jesus said, no man can come to me. God has to save first. Then they come. This heresy results in many false salvation ideas. It results in a weak view of salvation where man can choose to save himself and it goes on and on the terrible damage done by missing these six words. We love them. If all are depraved and rebels against God, will any come to Christ? And if any will come to Christ, how will they come to Christ? The differences among men are incredible. But they're not by innate ability. They're by God's power. Right. That your, faith in, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2.5 And so we have in John 6.44 the next three words, except the Father. That's the difference maker. That's the game changer. All the differences with God, except the Father. It doesn't say except the preacher do a better job. Except the mommy have devotions differently. Except the Christian school teacher do it differently. Notice it doesn't say that except the evangelist travel, except the missionary go, except the church members give to get the missionary to go. It doesn't say any of that. It says except the Father. We've already got the best preacher. We've got Jesus Christ preaching, and he said, no man can come to me except the Father. Thank you, Father. We should say with Paul right now in our hearts and voice, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. He is the difference maker, and he's made a difference in our lives. The key word here is accept. Most of the other times in the New Testament, the inspired disjunctive is but. And you know I like those inspired buts throughout the Bible. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, Galatians 1 15 and 16, but we are bound to give thanks all way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, and so on. God must intervene because man's inability is beyond his own help. He can't help himself and no other man can help him. God makes all the difference, every bit of it, and she'll get all the praise. I hope that some of you have taken the time, and if you haven't, you might want to. Look at 37 through 40 and 44 and 45 And just mark out the five phases of salvation because they're all there. They're all there and they're all connected. And they're all put in the logical order that we understand them. Right there in those six verses. It's pretty neat. And it starts out with all that the Father giveth me. Because it starts out with election in the eternal phase of salvation. And it ends up with a triple statement of the final phase of salvation. Which is glorification by the words, I will raise him up at the last day. Oh, it's sweet. It's got conversion in there, but conversion is dependent upon being drawn by God. Being drawn by God is dependent upon all that the Father giveth me. It's beautiful. Without taking the time, I just want to share it with you. Thank you, Abigail Unger. Hi. I'm glad that you appreciate the five phases of salvation and that you wanted to take those four verses and show me the different phases in those verses. 
Yes, I, if I was a young man, I'd be looking around too to see who I was talking to. <laughs> Bible doctrine requires a drawing to Christ, and we've got it right here. No man can come to me except the Father, so we've got salvation in God's hands, not ours, which sent me, which have sent me. Oh, they didn't want to hear that again, but the Lord Jesus Christ is just going to stick it in there again. Except the Father which hath sent me. Remember, I came down from heaven. I came down from the Father. I came not to do my will, but the Father's will. He repeats it here for this audience that didn't want to hear it. The word draw has more meanings than any word that you can probably find in an Oxford English Dictionary. If you'll think about the word draw and go look it up, I just want to give you, out of its, de- its length, its list of definitions would circle the church maybe. Okay? In seven categories. Listen. Seven categories of meanings for the word draw. Of traction, of attraction. These are the Oxford English Dictionary's titles for the categories of meaning. This is just an amusing side note. Of traction, of attraction, of extraction, of tension, extension, protraction, of delineation or construction, of motion, moving oneself in combination with other adverbs. Those are the seven categories. Interesting. Well, what are we going to do with the word draw? Do you think that it means that Jesus is going to do a miracle and see how many people are drawn? You're thinking of the word draw as entice or persuade or move in an emotional or logical way. But that's not how you read the word draw in the New Testament. I just gave you the examples John has most of them right in the Gospel of John since he uses it right here. What is it in John chapter 2? They drew wine out and bore it to the governor of the feast. Did they ask the wine to come out? Did they tell the wine to come out? If you want to be good wine, you'll come out and get in this cup and go to the governor or we're going to pour you out on the ground. Was it any enticement or persuasion? Like, no. Chapter 4. Jesus with the woman of Samaria at the well. Sir, what do you have to draw out the water? Was Jesus going to ask the water to come up and give him a drink? Come on now, I'm, I'm trying to help you. I know you've looked at this verse, and what does the word draw mean? If we get over to John 18, Peter drew a sword. Did he ask the sword to come out? John 21, Peter has more fish than he can handle, and he's trying to draw his net in. It's two, four, 18 and 21 in the Gospel of John has about 10 of the 14 uses of draw in the New Testament. It's forcibly dragging and pulling it. Just like we needed to be forcibly dragged and pulled to Christ or we wouldn't have come. And how does he do it? So that we are still willing? He changes our nature. He changes our heart. And he opens that heart. So we go willingly, but it was a drastic change inside of us that drew us to Christ. It was teaching us. It was giving us a new nature that could be taught. The next verse is going to tell us about the teaching ministry on the inside. It is saying, let there be light. And that draws us to Christ because it totally changes us to see the light. The synonyms or defining words are drag, haul, move, pull, tow, tug. The change in the Bible that is necessary for us to come to Christ is called a birth. It's called a quickening, a regeneration, a creation, a resurrection, a renewal. It's making us over again. Is that a drastic movement on a person? Is that exerting force upon them to change them and pull them to Christ? Making them alive? We've we've got a morgue of spiritually dead men and the Lord Jesus Christ says live. And we leap into life. And we see Christ. That's drawing us to him in the ultimate way of drawing us and then pulling us by teaching us on the inside as the next verse. These inspired terms require divine choice, divine power, man's passivity, instantaneous act, giving of life, denying creature activity, and a creature death, which we understand from the word of God. The terms exclusively require God's sovereign choice and man is passive. That's wonderful. Psalm 110 and verse 3, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the day of thy power they shall be made willing. And we have been made willing. If God peradventure will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. 
Who has to give them repentance? If a person repents and runs to Christ, how is the drawing? I think you ought to repent. No, it's granting them repentance that they can deliver themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. It's an overpowering act giving them that repentance. And it's up to God's will to do that. Whose heart the Lord opened. In Acts 16 and verse 14, faith itself is a gift of God. James 2.5, God has chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. The drawing cannot be enticement, invitation, or persuasion. The will of the flesh isn't involved. Didn't we already learn that in 1.13? It is not of the will of the flesh. Didn't we already learn in the Bible that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God? Even the Spirit of God presenting the truth of Jesus. There's an idea that if you show a person a picture of Jesus on the cross and talk about his blood dripping down and how much God loves you, that just about anybody in the world will get down on their knees and invite Jesus into their heart. So, inviting Jesus into their heart doesn't have anything to do with much. How about that Jesus Christ now ascending in heaven and coming as Lord, and you're going to give an account of your life to him, and he has given his commandments, and they cover every part of your life. Now let's find out if you want to invite Jesus into your heart. And you find out the person wasn't sincere ever. Yeah, we can tell sob stories long enough, but Jesus isn't on the cross right now. He's seated at the right hand of God, and he is the Lord of men. And he expects you to be willing to cut off your right hand and pluck out your right eye. Try that for invitational material. If you really want to be Christ's disciple, cut your right hand off and pluck your right eye out. Because that's the Jesus of the Bible. But you know what? When the Lord has drawn us and given us a new heart, and we hear about that Jesus, that's the only one we want. We don't want that silly little effeminate creature that the rest of the world calls Jesus. We want the one sitting at the right hand of God coming to judge this world in flaming fire with his mighty angels. So we dumb the message down to only keep those around that love Jesus Christ as he's presented in the Bible. You know when it says that except the Father which hath sent me draw him, God can, God can manipulate your heart. Do you know that? At break time, a number of us were talking about the fact, or before the service, first thing this morning, that God rewires men in different ways. You know, our, we've messed up our wire nuts ourselves in the Garden of Eden. But then he rewires us in regeneration so that we have a new man. And that new man is created in righteousness and true holiness and he loves Jesus Christ. If that man with scrambled wires is presented truth and continues to rebel against that truth and is not thankful, God rewires him a different way so that he degrades himself and dishonors his body with other men like him in the sickness that's described, the sick abominable sin that's described in Romans chapter 1. God's in the business of mind manipulation. And we've been over many examples in the Bible, two favorites, one from each testament. Isaiah 10, 5 through 15, God used the mind of Sennacherib to come and chase in Israel. But Sennacherib got too puffed up about it. And so God had a reason when he was done chasing Israel to punish Sennacherib with a terrible punishment, 185,000 soldiers and his own murder by his sons. In Revelation 17, 17, the nations of Europe gave their kingdoms to the, the whore because God put it in their minds to fulfill his will. Oh, yes. And do you know what he's done for us? He's taught us to come to Christ, right. his son. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. How? I'll draw them. I'll drag them. I'll pull them. That's a term used here in the Gospel of John. In other places, in John, in other places in the Bible, it's they'll be born again. I'll quicken them. I'll regenerate them. But he changes us to come to Christ. 
This work of God the Father and of Christ and the Spirit is without man's aid. There are no ordinances or sacraments to direct God's power to regenerate. He regenerates whom he will when he chooses. Baptism, that doesn't get us regenerated. That doesn't get us to Christ. We get baptized because we've been to Christ. And we have found out that he was buried and rose again for us. So we want to be buried and rise again in Baptist baptism. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 44, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. The only way we'll ever believe on Jesus Christ is that work of grace in our lives. How can I know that that work of grace is in my life? How can you know that that work of grace is in your life? Then go to Christ. And don't go to Christ as some of these in the Gospel of John went, with lip service, with mental assent. Go with love. Go with passion. Go with obedience. Go with repentance. Go with service. Because that shows by your works that your faith is real, your faith is sincere, and it's the product of God drawing you and teaching you, as verse 45 will explain. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.